The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., or 12 p.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There's a, a house that you can go visit in California. It's called the Winchester Mystery House. It's named Winchester because the heiress of the Winchester fortune built this house at around the turn of the century, like the late 1800s, early 1900s. She began building this house, but you've got to know the backstory to this house. Um, she, when her husband died, she was living in Boston. She inherited the whole fortune that was built upon the Winchester rifle. It's the, it was the rifle that, quote, the rifle that won the West, uh, it was also used in the Civil War. And this woman, when she, inher- she inherited this fortune that was almost inexhaustible, it was so tremendous, this, this amount of money. But she was haunted by the fact that there was so much death associated with this rifle. She was so haunted by that, and she felt so much guilt that she had to seek some answers. So she was a, a woman that was into spiritualism. Unfortunately, she went to a, like a fortune teller. And this fortune teller said the way to get this guilt and this feeling of haunting that you have, the way to get that off is you have to move out west and you have to build a mansion from this, for, this fortune. But here's the key. You have to con- constantly build as long as you're alive. So she picked up, she moved, and she bought a property, she bought a house, and she started to build this mansion. And the point was not this particular blueprint or this particular plan that she had. The point was to stay busy and keep building. And she fulfilled that to the point that she had teams of carpenters that would work shifts so that there was construction going on around the, around the clock 24-7 constantly. She was told to stay busy, and so she, she kept busy. Now, the result is a house that it's not that she built for decades, so she didn't start with this plan of what, what's something that we can build for decades. She just kept building and building and building, and so the result is this gigantic mansion that's a maze with all these nonsensical rooms and hallways that go in all these different directions. In fact, if you're touring it, they say, do not get lost from the tour guide because you'll spend hours lost in these hallways. So let me give you an idea. Check out this picture. This is a picture of, uh, of the house. You can see that it's a very large house, but that doesn't give you a picture of how bizarre the layout is. Look at this next picture. It's kind of a bird's eye view. All right, let me give you the stats on this house. Okay, it's about 24,000 square feet. There are 10,000 windows, 2,000 doors, 52 skylights, 47 fireplaces, 40 bedrooms, 40 staircases, 13 bathrooms, 6 kitchens, 3 elevators, 2 basements, and 1 shower. Not a high priority in this house, I guess, okay? Um, okay, so what you have is, is it's just completely, it doesn't make sense. It didn't start with this big blueprint. She just kept building and she just would give these carpenters another project. And to give you an idea of how crazy this is, is it also the things you find inside are insane. Like check this out right here. There's this door right here. They call it the door to nowhere. It actually works. She just one day said, okay, put a door right there to the carpenters. And they put that door. So if you're inside, you walk out that door, you fall out the second floor. Okay, the inside there's all these crazy staircases. Like, look at this one. 
that goes right up into the ceiling. She just, they had to stay busy, so she said, all right, just build a staircase here. There's this other staircase um, that it is seven flights, okay? It's a staircase that goes seven flights. It's 44 steps, but the entire seven flights only goes up nine feet total. Okay, you say, okay, that doesn't make sense. Here's a picture of it, okay? Each stair only goes up two inches. Okay, here's the thing with this house. It, it's just this bizarre, it's, it doesn't make sense. It, you could get lost in it. There's all these random, there's doors that open into walls, windows that open into walls. There, there's, there's all these crazy secret passageways in it. And the, the whole point of this house was not, okay, I want a beautiful mansion and, and we're going to start with this blueprint and start with this plan and purpose. The point was to just stay busy. And the result is this jumble that doesn't make sense. Now, here's what's so interesting about this house. I wonder if that's somewhat of an illustration and a metaphor for how our society operates so much, specifically our families and even our lives. Like, I wonder if it, kind of our culture is, we're, we, just, we just stay busy. And we so often don't take a step back and say, okay, what's the blueprint? What's the gigantic purpose and mission I wonder if so often we just, just stay busy. We, we hear someone say, build over here. So we build over here, and I'll oh, build over here, and we do this. And oh, what about your future? And what about this? And what about this? And what about the kids? And what about your health? And what about the job? And what about this? And we're just building staircases over here and doors right here, and we're just staying busy. Like, let me just ask you a question. When was the last time you just sat quietly with nobody around, no TV on, no music on, no book, no magazine, your phone was way far away from you, and you just sat in silence with yourself. I think there's a reason that most of us don't really ever do that, and I wonder if the reason is because there's a big looming question that haunts us a little. I wonder if in the quiet, there's a question that comes stomping through, and maybe we don't even realize it's there. The question is, what is the, the purpose of my life? What's the one big blueprint that makes all that what I'm working for make sense? When I end this life, will I say there's one purpose, this is what I went after, this is what everything was pointing to. Like, I wonder if that's a big looming question. What's all this for? What's the purpose? And I wonder if sometimes we stay busy just to avoid that question because we don't have an answer. We're going to look at a passage that illuminates that question and gives us a, a really interesting answer to that question. It's in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at chapter 11. If you turn there uh, with me, turn to chapter 11. And here's the background. Nehemiah is, takes place in the Old Testament. It's a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus. All of Jerusalem has been completely um, sacked. It's in rubble. People come back out of exile. There's no one living there, but they come back out of exile. They start rebuilding the city. They rebuild the walls, they rebuild the temple, and now they're rebuilding the spiritual community. Let's look in um, chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says this. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring, out, to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city while nine of the ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men 
who, willing, who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting. They've rebuilt this whole, uh, the walls. They haven't rebuilt the whole city yet, but they've re- rebuilt the whole wall. They rebuilt the temple. The houses still need to be rebuilt. The in, inside of the city needs to be rebuilt. And what we find here is that there's not very many people. There's just a few people living in the city, and the rest is open, so they need to populate it. So they cast lots. Lots is by, in other words, it's like by chance you decide if you're going to move into the city. Lots is the word that we get the word lottery from, and it's the same idea. They had a lottery so that one in ten people would move back into Jerusalem out of these towns and villages that they have over the last couple decades settled with their families. They would, one in ten, they want to move back into Jerusalem. And I want you to notice what verse two says. It says that they blessed those who willingly offered to move in. Now that helps us understand this dynamic. The lottery is not who are the lucky ones that get to move in. The lottery are those who have to move in. Okay? It's maybe counterintuitive. You're like, okay, brand new city, walls, they're rebuilding this. Like, is it who gets to move into this brand? No, it's who has to move in to the city. And they bless those who willingly offered to move in. Now, why are they not wanting to move in to this city? Okay, think about this. There's a couple reasons, and it's important to get this whole text. They've settled in these towns and villages outside, and so they've already they've got a livelihood. They've got, they've got jobs, they've got fields, they've got flocks. And if you're a farmer or if you're a shepherd, you can't do that job and live in Jerusalem. So you're going to leave all of that behind to move in. You're leaving your comfort. You're leaving your conveniences. You are, you are leaving um, the security, financial security. This is not a financial advantage. This is a financial disadvantage. Many of them are just going to have to start entirely new careers. They may have had a, a career path passed down from generation to generation to generation. Their fathers and grandfathers may have done that job, and now they're moving into a city, and they've got to co- co- find a completely different job. This is not a financial advantage. They've got to move into the city and start over. It's a sacrifice. But there's another reason. They're actually also sacrificing their security and their safety. Remember, if you've been journeying with us through this story, as they're rebuilding these walls, there are these other cities and nations that are constantly trying to stop them and they're threatening to attack them. It might be actually safer, even though now they have walls and Jerusalem needs walls to be safe. It still might be safer in these distant villages and towns because these other nations and cities don't care about those little villages and towns. They care about Jerusalem. They're sacrificing their safety and their conveniences to move in. Now, the rest of this chapter is one of those chapters where there's these long lists of people, like all these crazy names and and this guy's the son of this guy. And the reason that you've got all this, these people is they're historically um, remembering the people who moved into Jerusalem. And we're just going to look at a small sampling because I want you to see how they describe these people. This is how the rest of the chapter looks. It's verse 3. Let's pick it up. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on their property in their towns Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah 
and of the sons of Benjamin, of the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalel, the sons of Perez, and Maasiah, the son of Baruch, son of Kol, Hosa, the son of Haziah, the son of Adiah, son of Joiarib, the son of Zechariah, the son of the Shelanite. Now watch this. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Okay, here's how this chapter plays out. It gives you all these lists of people, these crazy names. And then at the end, it describes them as these valiant ones. These mighty ones. The courageous. This is a word used of like a soldier who's valiant and mighty in war. Okay, they're saying these are the valiant ones. It's almost like they're saying these are the best of us. These are the best ones among us. They are going in to Jerusalem to settle this city. All right, I want you to go all the way to the end of the chapter with me, and I want to look at these verses. This is verse 19 and 20. And I want you to look at this because there's one other interesting component that we've got to bring in to understand this context. Look what it says. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brothers who kept watch at the gates were 172. <laughs> and the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah. Listen, were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. I want to sit on this word inheritance for a second because this is critical to understanding what's happening in this passage. It says, okay, that's all the people who lived in Jerusalem. Everyone else, they lived in the towns of Judah. And it says this, each one lived in his inheritance. You've got to know how ancient Israel culture works because it's very different from ours when it comes to inheritance and property. In our culture, you can buy and sell property and, and houses and stuff all the time. It happens every day. There's always new houses and new properties being listed. In fact, if you get a property passed down to you, like maybe a, an uncle dies and he had a property and you, he leaves you a portion of it, you might keep it, you, you might invest in it, or you might sell it. Okay, there's all different things you can do with that. But in ancient Israel, that property stayed with your family permanently. So remember, this was the promised land. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. God gave this land to them when they came into this land. Every, all, all the 12 tribes, God had specifically portioned a section out to each one of these tribes. And then they got it. And then their families each had their own property that they passed down to their kids. And it would get passed down to their kids and on and on and on. In fact, if you went into debt and had to sell your property... You went into debt, had to, had to give out your property. There's usually one of your kin would come and buy that property back for you. If there was a, um, if you eventually got, got rid of your property, if you, your, one of your kin couldn't buy the property back, every 50 years, all the debts in all of Israel were completely canceled. Can you imagine that? All debt throughout the entire nation canceled, and all the properties were returned back to their original people. Your, the property that your parents had was meant to be kept in the family, not just down to your kids and your grandkids. It was meant to be kept in your family for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. It was a gift from God 
to you. That's how strongly their inheritance was. So rewind a couple chapters. If you were here as we're going through this series, you may remember that they had to do all these complex genealogies. Do you remember that? They had to prove that they belonged to Israel. Part of, part of the reason that was so important was because they were saying, these are my ancestors, so this is my property. This is where my, my great-great-great-great-grandparents lived Hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, this is my rightful property. So now let's move into chapter 11 and realize the people that are leaving these towns and villages and coming into Jerusalem, think about what they're leaving. They're surrendering even their inheritance. They're surrendering land that was given to their ancestors by God hundreds of years ago, thou, over a thousand years ago. They're moving in there. They're saying, I am leaving all of this because of the mission of God. I'm leaving not just my comfort, my security, my financial, financial security, my safety. I'm even leaving what is, quote, rightfully mine. I'm leaving all of that to move into the city. Now, just time out for a second. What's the, why do they need all these people moving into Jerusalem? What's the big deal? Like, why can't they just kind of do some kind of, like, you know, economic stimulus in Jerusalem and get people to want to move in, like make a bunch of really nice houses and paint them up all nice and sell them really cheaply and so people want to move in. Like, why don't they just do that? What's the big deal? Why do they have to have people populating this city? Well, you go all the way back to verse 1 and you've got to see this one detail. It's the only place in the book of Nehemiah in all its discussion about Jerusalem that it describes Jerusalem like this. It, calls, it says, Jerusalem, the holy city. Here's what they knew. This city, God has a specific plan to set aside this city. It's a strategic part of his rescue plan. Here, check this out. This is so fascinating. Before they all returned back to Jerusalem, they're all in exile. Jerusalem is in ruins. I just want you to imagine just a heap of rubble. No one can live there. They're living in Persia because the Babylonians conquered Israel and then Persians conquered Babylon, so now they're, they're living in Persia. While they're in Persia, a guy rose up named Daniel, an, uh, an Israelite. They're in Persia. Jerusalem is ruins. And he, God speaks through him, and this is what he prophesies. This is in Daniel 9. Just listen to this. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem... To the coming of an anointed wood, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Okay, think about this. There, none of them are living in Jerusalem at the time, and Daniel is prophesying, not only is Jerusalem going to be rebuilt, repopulated, there's going to be an anointed one, a prince, that's going to come to Jerusalem. Okay, they now move back from Persia. They move back into Jerusalem. They're living on the outskirts, and before they even start building anything, it's just rubble. They're all living on the outskirts. They don't know what to do yet. They haven't started building the temple or the walls. Just rubble. One of them, among them, that have just returned, a guy named Zechariah, here's what he said. God spoke through him, and he said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Prophesies that one day there's going to be a king that's going to come into Jerusalem. They're, they're all standing around. It's just rubble. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what's going to become of this city. And he says, start rejoicing now. 
They're not even allowed to rebuild anything yet. He's like, start rejoicing now. Because one day a king is going to come return to you and he is going to be riding. Is he going to come riding in on a chariot or on a, on a steed? He's going to come in humble on a donkey. And if you remember the story of Jesus, the Sunday before he's crucified, he enters into Jerusalem and, and he doesn't come on a war elephant or he doesn't come with a huge entourage. He comes on a lowly donkey. And you remember what happened? They cut down palm branches and they lay them before him. They take off their coats and they create this red carpet for him as he's coming in. And he fulfills that prophecy. But doesn't it completely change the dynamic when you realize that was prophesied when they're all standing around Jerusalem and it's still just rubble? Here's what they knew. This was a holy city. This was a holy city that God had set aside for as a significant part of his rescue plan. So these people are standing in their villages and they're like, I need to go to that city because it's part of God's mission. I've got to go. And, and they left their comforts, their conveniences, their, their safety, their security, and they even left what was rightfully theirs to go to that city. Now, does that sound like someone else? That's a foreshadowing of that prince, that Messiah, that king himself. Because that Messiah is going to, is, was standing in heaven, the Son of God, and he looks down at the needy, and he looks down at Jerusalem in particular, and he says, I'm going to leave all of this behind, and I'm going to go. To you. And Jesus comes down to earth. He, it says he, he was a righteous king bringing salvation. He was righteous. He had done nothing wrong. He had done no sin. And one day he does ride in to Jerusalem. And before the week is out, he's nailed to a cross. He's bleeding and dying in agony, crucified. And on the third day, he rose again on the, on, from the dead. But he was bringing salvation to us. What was he doing? He was paying for all our sins. God was putting the punishment for our sins on Jesus. And there's a picture of all of that happening a couple hundred years before where they all come to rebuild Jerusalem. And Jesus comes into the rebuilt Jerusalem and his body is torn apart. It's a picture of the salvation, this incredible mission that God was on, God himself came down in the flesh, that God was on to save us. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because that same mission continues. Jesus rises from the dead and he looks at all of his followers, and what does he say? Go. He says, now it's your turn to go. He says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, preach the good news that God is here to rescue mankind. Go preach the news of what, G what I have done to die on the cross for humanity. He says, go. And then he says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, and then Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He says, go. And the story continues, that word is on you, that, that word, that commission, that same plan is on you. In fact, that is the core of what it means to be a follower of Christ, is to follow after him in the same way Jesus looked down and said, I will go. Once we've put our faith in Jesus, now we, in the same way, just like Christ, we go with the message of salvation. It is a core of who we are. What's the word that is associated with a Christ follower? Is it recoil from the world? Be sheltered from the world, run away from the world, find safety from the world, find what's mine in the world, find what's convenient and comfortable. No, the word that is on a Christ follower is the word go to the world. Number one on our outlines, it puts it like this. The constant trajectory of a Jesus follower 
is to go. The constant trajectory of a Jesus follower is to go. That is to define our lives and to define our church. Now you might be saying, okay, yeah, look, I got it. Yeah, great commission. We're supposed to, we, we're on the mission of God to rescue the world. I, I get it. But so often I wonder if we, um, if we don't actually realize that that is the core of what we're about as a church. So um, one of the dynamics of having um, little kids and, and there's all their, their toys around, one of the dynamics is um, I also get to play with their toys uh, in the name of watching the kids, okay? And so um, we have for our, our son and daughter, there's this little car, and it's just like the classic wind-up car, okay? And it, you back it up, and then it, you know, it, it zooms forward, okay? You, you've seen this phenomenon before, this incredible machinery, okay? And it's this wind-up car, and there's one in particular that I mean, it is amazing. Like, I marvel at how fast this car goes, okay? And so we're playing with the kids, and at one time, I just, I'm like looking at this, and I'm like, now, I wonder if I put a book, like, would it launch off of it? Okay, the kids have gone somewhere else, they're playing, and now I'm setting up this complicated maze of, like, you know, things to launch it and ramps and stuff with this car, you know, and, and they're probably sticking their fingers in electrical sockets somewhere, but I'm, you know, launching this car, okay, and so, um, but I think about that car, and I want you to think, take this car, and I want you to, in your mind, I want you to be there on the floor, and I want you to set up some blocks, okay, and I want you to say those blocks are like the church, okay, and I want you to go in that, that little car, and I want you to imagine you're going to church, okay, and you zoom the car back, and you shoot it towards the blocks where the church is at, right? That's how we view going to church, but what if we took the car and turned it around, so it's facing away from church. And what if we viewed our coming to church like rolling the car backwards so that when it's leaving the church, it's launching? It's, not, it's destination is not the church. It's you're winding it backwards at church to be launched into the world. Do you realize, church, this is the core of who we are. We are called to go. Now, I want you to think about, I want to ask you just an honest question. When you think about church, just think about this question for a second. If you were to ask, what, what's a good reason to join a church? How do I know if I'm supposed to join and be a part of a church? There's two questions we usually ask. Here's the first one. The first is, what does the church do for me? Do I like what it's doing? Do I, do I feel like, uh, you know, what I'm doing? Am I getting fed there? Do I like this ministry? Do I like that? And the typical question of one of them is, what, do I, is, is the, what is the church doing for me? Here's the other question. What is the church receptive to me doing for it? And so sometimes I'm saying, well, this are, these are the ministries I've been involved in and I like to be involved in. Do you have any of these? Because I'm looking for a church I'd, I'd like to serve in this way. I, I've got a class that I teach. Do you do this here? Or I like to be involved in this. Can I do this here? And it's still about what am, what am I doing for the church? But what if the right question is this? What's the mission of the church and do I feel called to join that mission? What if I realize that the core of the church is actually to go back out and to reach the world? It's not even as much what we're doing here as much as what we're going out there to do. See, if, my, if, what, if I'm analyzing whether I want to be a part of a church by what it does for me or what it will allow me to do for it, the stopwatch just started and my time at that church will be limited. Here's why. It's what we talked about a, a couple weeks ago. The church is not about my preferences it's about God's purposes and if a church is not aligned 
If a church is aligned to say, we're about this mission, we're not aligned to make everyone happy, we're, aligned, we're aligned for this mission. If we're all aligned for this mission, then I'm ready for whatever gets reshuffled and moved around in that church, I'm ready for that mission because we're all around, aligned by how we're going into the community. But if I'm like, well, this is, I'm here because I like what it does for me, or I like this program, or I'm here because I like to serve in this capacity. Well, if one day, there will come a day where the mission that God is calling that church to do will come into conflict with that program or that preference. And if the church is faithful, it will go forward with that mission, and I will leave and find another church that aligns with my preferences. Here's what it means like this. The more I'm following Jesus, the more mature I'm growing in my faith, the more receptive I will be to the changes at my church, even when it includes my preferences. Because the more mature as I'm following Jesus, the more fervent I am about the mission of Jesus, I just care, do these changes align with our mission? Because that's what I care about. See, here's the thing for all of us in our life. Deep down, we're asking, what's my purpose I'm building, I'm building a little over here, I'm building a little over here. Do you realize, Christian, you have a purpose. There is one dominating blueprint on your life. There's one incredible thing you are called to. There's a great mission. He's left you on this planet. He has something for you to accomplish, something for you to do, something for us to do together. He's put the word go and stamped that on you and saying, that's to define your life. You have a mighty purpose for your life. You don't have to wonder what it is. Just be faithful with the next step. So if, our, if what we're learning from this passage is the consistent trajectory of the people of God, of Christ followers, is to go, what does it then look like to go? Let's look at three things quickly. There are three things on your outline for us as we're going. First, we must go to the needy. This can be something simple like maybe um, community groups. Our community groups all stop over the summer and we take a break, um, but maybe what you do is while you're, you're, you're no longer meeting during the summer, maybe you say, hey guys, let's plan a service project sometime maybe in June or July or August, and let's just meet again and just serve together. And maybe you partner with one of the organizations that your church partners with, and, and what, here at West Pines, what we partner with, and you say, okay, well, let's go and, and serve there together. It's an opportunity to be an arm of the church and serve in the community. Maybe a, another way you can do is get involved in our upcoming student camp. One of, the, one of the greatest ways as a church we reach into the community is what our students do. It's incredible. Our students go all for a week, go all throughout the community in the name of Jesus as representatives of our church and serve, get their hands dirty serving. And maybe for you, it's, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to volunteer that week. Maybe I'm going to take some time off from work so I can help out because I want to be a part of that mission. Not just what it's doing in these students' lives, but what it's doing through the community. Maybe you say, look, I can't do that. I can't serve or volunteer there. But there's other ways that every single person can get involved. In the back there, you're going to find tickets like this. They're little tags that you can pick up and take with you. And if you take this, you're committing to saying, here's how I'm going to get involved. And there's all different levels you can do that. The green ones are a way you can get involved financially. And it's a way that you can help a student get to a scholarship to camp. There's all different levels. Here's one for a full scholarship. It's uh, for $289. And you say, look, uh, maybe we don't even have students in our, in our home, but we want students to be able to go. Or another way is something practical. There's these red tags, and, and these are all lists of things that we need in order to serve. This one says a 12-pack of paper towels, and maybe you can take that. It has instructions on the back, and that's a way every one of us can get involved 
in this effort, but maybe there's an even bigger way you can, you can step in and go to the needy. Some of you in your homes, you look around with your family and you say, you know, we have room in our house. We have an, we have an extra bedroom. What can we do? And maybe you say, you know, there are children tonight that have been pulled out of their homes and they're going to spend tonight in a shelter. They're temporary orphans. And of all people as a church, there are going to be homes that will eventually hopefully take them in as, a, as foster children into their homes. But how can we as a church stand by and let those children go into any other home but a home that knows the love of Jesus Christ? Of all things, the way we can go to the needy is bringing these precious ones <coughs> excuse me, into our homes and reminding them <coughs> of the love of God and how precious they are in his sight and an opportunity to share with them the gospel. Maybe some of you as families need to start praying a dangerous prayer. But there's a second way we're called. Number, number three on your outline is we go to the lost. You know, one of the most practical, easy ways you can reach out to the lost is just simply invite them to church. That's one of the most powerful things you could do. You've got all the gifts, the whole church working together to reach out and share the love of Jesus with someone. And maybe you just, you just invite them to church, say, hey, come with me sometime. You bring them to church and maybe they can hear that God loves them and accepts them. And maybe they'll be like, hey, no, I'm, this, I'm not into that. And say, hey, no pressure, just know you're always welcome. We'd love to have you. And maybe that'll open up some great conversations about God and about how much God loves them and accepts them right where they're at. But here's the last one. We are called to go to the ends of the earth. You realize our mission as a church here, we're called by Jesus, go, and he does it in concentric circles almost, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We are called to go to the ends of the earth with our efforts. And maybe some of you, if you've never been on a, a, a foreign mission trip, a, a a short-term mission trip, maybe you, you write on your connection card, hey, I need to know more about this. I want to take my family, maybe take my teenagers with me. I want us to experience what God is doing around the world. And maybe you say, I want to give, my, I want to give some vacation time to go and be part of my church's efforts to go. But maybe some of you, God is calling to pray something even more dangerous. You know, we've got foreign missionaries that we support, but maybe God is calling some of you to pray about taking you, you, maybe it's you, you and your spouse, maybe it's you and your family overseas as a missionary. You know, we've never had our own missionary rise up from our midst. That's something we wait for, we're praying for, and praying for those valiant families that take the gospel to another land, to those who have, do not have the accessibility to the gospel that we have. And maybe some of you, it's time to start praying a pretty dangerous prayer with your family. Say, man, you're talking about some pretty serious things to do. I mean, those are pretty intense. You know, the ways you're talking about go. I mean, that's like really ferocious going. I mean, what does this calling look like to go? I'll never forget a picture that was uh, cemented in my brain. I will never forget it. I was in, in high school. And there was someone that was talking to a group of us about a mission effort in Sudan. There's a missionary had returned from Sudan and was telling me, telling us about what was happening there, and it's one of the most persecuted parts of the world for Christians. And he said, well, I want you to look at this picture. And we saw a man, and he was sitting in a chair, and he had no legs below the knees. And he said, I want you to tell you about this man. This man 
um, is, a, is a Christian evangelist in the Sudan. He said um, he was warned by the authorities to stop going from village to village and preaching the gospel. He said, don't go anymore. But he said, in the face of all those threats, in the face of persecution and death and torture, he said, no, I will go. I'm commanded to go. I have to go. And he kept going from village to village to village until eventually they said, we'll literally cut this off at the knees. And they took off his legs beneath his knees. And then the missionary says, I want you to look a little closer and I want you to look at the ends of his legs where they stop. He says, you'll notice they're all calloused over. He says, you know, eventually they got him a donkey so he could ride from village to village to continue preaching the gospel. But before then, he dragged himself from village to village to continue preaching the gospel. That's what it looks like to go. Christian, do you realize that that's the same calling on you? He's reading the same verses we're reading. He's got the same commission that we have when Jesus looked at his disciples and said, go, that's the same heartbeat that we're supposed to have. You say, am I supposed to go to Sudan from village to village to village? Maybe not, but maybe. But maybe in the meantime, as we're praying dangerous prayers, maybe in the meantime we're saying, okay, but I'm going to go ferociously now. I'm going to go and take this incredible message of God's rescue of humanity, and I'm going to invite people that he's put in my life. I'm going I'm to go, and we're going to serve this community with a service project, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get involved in student camp, or we're going to take some, get some training on what it means to be a foster parent, to learn, is this what you're calling us to do? Or I want to go be a part of a, a mission effort around the world, and maybe for now, it's just let's take the next step we are called to go and may we be a church that answers that call of Jesus in a way that lives up to the incredible calling that he's placed on our life may we respond to that call because we keep ever before us the fact that Jesus looked down from heaven and said I can't leave them where they're at I've got to go to them maybe for you the first step is just simply receiving what Jesus has done in your life. Do you realize that Jesus, he came here for you? He knew that we were facing an eternity away from God and hell because of our sin. But he loved us so much, he took all of that on himself. He died on the cross, and then he rose again from the dead. And he says, if you just believe in me, believe that I washed away your sins, put your faith in me, you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven permanently, past, present, and future and you'll have a place with me in heaven. Maybe you want to put your faith in Jesus this morning. If that's you, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? Maybe that's you, and you want to take that step today. If that's you, I just want to ask you to pray this simple prayer right there in your seat. It's between you and God. Just make this simple prayer. God, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for not just leaving me where I was, but looking down from heaven and saying, I'm going to go. Thank you for sacrificing so much to save me. I put my faith in you, and I'm going to follow you no matter where it takes me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out our other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954 432 0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.